This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. wrestling omakase it is episode number 151 um before we get into everything anything else uh i feel like i have to say uh, you know we're not going to talk a ton about this because you know i want omakase to maybe be a distraction for people who need it right now because of course there's a lot going on in wrestling right now um you know it's a good thing what's going on in wrestling right now but at the same time you know, I, I totally understand if it's too intense for you or if it's too much for you or if you've been tuning out of it. Um, you know, people have to people, especially with past trauma, can only deal with so much of this. And I'm you know, I'm very aware of that. So I just wanted to say, you know, I, I personally and I'm, I'm actually pretty damn certain I speak for my guest as well. And probably everybody on the Voice of Wrestling Network is. You know, I stand with survivors. I believe survivors. Um, you know, I am happy with what's happening as far as, like, I'm happy that we're hopefully going to see a better future for professional wrestling. And hopefully there's going to be some really terrible people that are having their misdeeds exposed. Um, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's very traumatic to read about a lot of the time. And to live through I guess and you know there's a lot of other industries going through this at the same time um you know we did like the comics industry and the stand-up comic industry I believe we're both going through a very similar thing this past week but it's like you know it, it's something that has to happen and I'm very rambling on this but like it's it's just a very um you know it's like I said it's not a bad thing it's something that needs to happen and hopefully as we go forward the people involved in wrestling you know there'll be more oversight and the, some of the worst people will be gone but uh you know i think i, I think if you're a longtime fan you're not surprised that something like this eventually happened to pro wrestling um maybe you're surprised by the scale of it but you know especially i i know i speaking personally i know i was surprised by the scale of like trainer trainee stuff especially in the uk i had no idea uh, how bad that was. The stuff with fans, I mean, I I think if you're, not to not to excuse that at all, but I think if you're a wrestling fan, you know, you've heard that, those stories before. Um, but, you know, it's just really, you know, like I said, it's it's a good thing 
to have all this stuff come forward. It's obviously not a good thing that this stuff happened in the first place. And my heart goes out to all the survivors out there that have really bravely stepped forward and tried to make the wrestling world a better place. So I stand with all of them. Uh, I believe you. And, you know, I'm very, I appreciate what you've done, what you're doing to hopefully uh, make wrestling better going forward. So that's all we're going to say about this here. Um, You know, we're going to try to get your mind off it and try to have a good time here talking about some old Japanese wrestling matches, but I did want to say that before anything else. So, very awkward transition to introducing my guest this week, uh, Mr. Caselo from Open the Voice Gate, a podcast I founded with you. <laughs> so, you know, and this is somehow this is still your only, I mean, this is not the first time you and I are podcasting together. It's probably not even like the 50th time, but it is your first appearance on Omakase. So, hello. Hi, John. How are you? Um, um, yeah, you know, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, for, first of all, I just I just want to echo all of John's thoughts there in the opening. I think that was very well put. Am I the last person from Voices of Wrestling to be on this podcast? No, not even close. OK. All um, right. I wasn't like, sure if I was the last remaining. Uh, not even a holdout. It certainly hasn't been intentional. But for the the, the length of this show, we've just never organize the opportunity and i'm glad to finally be on here doing it yeah there's a bunch of people that have never been on um you know as far as like even the all the i don't even think all the podcast hosts have been on yet so and that's cut that was kind of one of my goals for uh you know for this five matches thing was to try to get all the well eventually all the podcast hosts at least one person from each podcast but yeah we haven't even finished the podcast tour yet so that makes me feel better. Um, yeah. I was I felt guilty, legitimately guilty for most of today. I was like, I think I think everyone's done it. Like I, I I'm, I'm I'm like I don't want it to to make it seem like it's been a personal attack on John. It just it just hasn't happened. But there's been no ill will involved on at least my end. Like I'm glad to finally be doing Omakase. There is on my that, end. No, I'm just kidding. That, that coveted year end Omakase ballot in a year where it's certainly going to be loaded with opportunity. Oh, yeah. I'm excited to have that now. Um. So you might be the second to last podcast host though current podcast host because i think the only remaining one that's never done it now is uh chris novembrino from shake the ropes so i think off the top of my head just looking at this list yes so but there's definitely like written contributors that have never done it like a whole bunch of them like you know kevin wilson's never been okay, on cool. here uh, you know, like all those types of people that never, that write like two things a year, you know? I was going to say, you actually have people on the podcast that do stuff for the site. And so, of course, Kevin Wilson hasn't been on the podcast. That would make sense. And we know we can talk all the shit about Kevin we want because he's never going to listen to this. No. Because he, oh, no. he never listens to podcasts. So in No, or own. especially if I'm the guest, there's no shot. And again, no ill will between Kevin and I, but I just know in his podcatcher, he sees with Case Low and that episode is getting skipped. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, there's all all sorts of Kevin Wilson types who have never been on here before. Uh, but yeah, like I think you're the second to last uh, like current podcast host who's never been on. Because I was trying to think of like some of the other ones, and Rob Reed was on like a Wrestle Kingdom episode, not this past one, but the one year before. Uh, Joe Gagne's been on a bunch of other people, so you know, I don't know why we took so long to get you on, but you're here now. So there you I'm go. here now. Uh, so. What else has been going on for you, I guess, other than the terrible fucking week in wrestling? I know you and I are both trying to get into Japanese baseball at the same time. Yeah, that is... We'll see how long that lasts for me. I... 
I mean, I grew up a, a ginormous baseball fan. I'm a Detroit Tigers fan, Los Angeles Dodgers fan. Those are weird teams to like, but I, you know, have my specific reasons for them. And I, you know, ever since 2016, 2017, I've had a decreasing interest in Major League Baseball because I just think uh, the the league is bad at many things in terms of pushing the game forward. I think Rob Manfred is an abysmal commissioner, and there's no American baseball to watch right now. So while I'm consuming, I, w- I would normally say all of this Japanese wrestling, but right now I'm only watching Dragon Gate because they're the only company that has interested me in any sort of empty arena capacity. But with Japanese baseball starting up, I, I, I've at least got to give it a shot. I mean, I miss, even if I, you know, even if I haven't been a baseball super fan of the past years, I miss waking up on a morning in June and checking the NL Central standings just to see what's happening. And it's a, a part of my life that I miss. So if I can, you know, convert another interest into the Japanese version of it, I might as well. I yeah, I'm I'm I guess I'm kind of like you, and I'm always I always keep up with it even when I don't watch it, and like, you know, but especially like right now is when I'm really missing it because like june and stuff like late june when there's like there's no hockey playoffs there's like you know you just in general you're you're sitting around at home and stuff like i don't have you know this is when i probably watch mlb the most yeah a a wednesday night when there's nothing going on and nhl playoffs are done nba playoffs are done and you're just sitting at home on a Wednesday, there's something comforting about turning on a Dodgers Diamondback series late at night, and we don't have that right now, and it, it sucks. It's it's an element that, you know, I probably only watched 20, you know, games all the way through last year, but still to have that option is what I'm missing. Right, probably, probably the, we probably watched the exact, like the exact same number of games. <laughs> but yeah, like, uh, it's been really fun getting into Japanese baseball and, like, you know, just picking a favorite team and stuff and picking you know just watching different teams i have that like japanese tv package so i just been like the games the games on the weekend especially like they, they start at like midnight or 1 a.m and so i could just put it on before i go to bed and watch like not the not the, quite the entire games but like you know several hours of it and you know f- like basically flick between games and stuff i only i don't get one network i don't so so basically japanese baseball is on like five thousand networks and <laughs> I don't get the Fuji TV networks, so which basically, as far as I can tell, means I just don't get one particular team's home games, uh, the Yakut Swallows, I guess, but uh, which is no big deal because they're, they're not going to be my favorite team anyway. But I decided to go very basic and just pick the Giants, even though they're the Yankees of MPB, because I went to I've been to two of their home games, so I figured it made sense. I already owned their towel. <laughs> well, there, the there you go. Yeah. I, uh, I'm pledging my allegiance to the Oric Buffaloes, which is simply really because funny. I mean, there. I my understanding is they've been awful for a very long time, but I was looking for a team that was Kobe based because Dragon Gate, which uh, you'll hear a lot about on the show, even if we're not talking about Dragon Gate specific matches, but it's just my frame of reference for those things. They're based in Kobe. Uh, and the the closest I could get to were the Oryx Buffaloes, who at one point uh, there was a team in Osaka and a team in Kobe. They merged and created this team. So that, I, I have no issue with Osaka, even though I've never been. It seems like it's a lovely a, place. Uh, it is an awesome city. But you picked you picked. Okay, so I want to I want to give the, the story a little bit more for uh, for people who don't know anything about Japanese baseball. So there were three teams in the Hanshin, like, uh, or in the Hanshin, in the Kansai area, right? There's the Hanshin Tigers, who are, like, incredibly famous. They're, like, the Red Sox of Japanese baseball. They're the second most popular team, 
after the Giants. Huge rival of the Giants. Uh, they never win anything, so I guess they're like the pre-04, uh, you know, Red Sox. And, I mean, they're still pretty far behind the Giants because I've seen estimates that, like, you know, of all the baseball fans in Japan, like 50% are Giants fans. So it's like they really dominate the, you know, it's a 12-team league. So you have 11 teams with 50% and one team with the other 50%. But the Tigers are definitely second. And then you had the Oryx Blue Wave, who are the team that play in the the stadium in Kobe, and the Kinsetsu, I believe. it was. It's like a train company in Kansai. The Kinsetsu Buffaloes in uh, Osaka. And they play in the Osaka Dome. Which, by the way, the, the Hanshin Tigers do not play in the Osaka Dome. They play, like, in this stadium, um, like, in between, called the Koshienken, I think. I think it's what it's called. It's, like, in a suburb of Osaka, but it's really famous because it's also where the... Um, the, you know, the, the high school baseball championships are held every year. So, anyway. So, these two teams both have so few fans in this market. Because the Hanshin Tigers, like, dominate the Kansai market. It's, you know, just completely one-sided. They both basically decide to merge together and form one team, the Oryx Buffaloes. And you'd think, once they merge, you know, with these two fan bases, they'd be a real powerhouse as far as, like, fan support. But no, they still apparently usually place 12th out of 12 teams in fan support. <laughs> like, no one cares. Even though I, even after two fucking fan bases merged together, it's just no one. And, like, there's, there's like, 7,000 teams in the Tokyo area. So you'd think some of those other Tokyo area teams would, would have a problem. But I guess they all hit, like, a little bit of a niche. Like, the, the Yakut Swallows in Tokyo hit the niche for, or the niche for, like, people who live in Tokyo proper but don't want to cheer for the Giants because it's too easy. Um, and then you have, like, the Sabre Lions that are a little outside of Tokyo this way and Yokohama Bay Stars are a little outside of Tokyo that way. Uh, you know, like, I mean, Yokohama's a whole other city, but it's very close to Tokyo. And the Chiba Marines and who are a little, you know, to the east. So it's, like, all different little areas. Whereas, like, I guess just having a second team in Osaka... You know, or even they play. They still apparently play some of their home games in Kobe, where the Oryx Blue Wave used to play. But apparently, those games draw even worse than their Osaka Dome <laughs> games do. When they joke. like they, I don't. People are like, we don't understand why you do this still because the games draw so bad. Uh, and then on top of all of this, the remember how I mentioned how the you know the the, the place where the uh, what's it called where the Hanshin Tigers play play their home games get, like gets taken over for like this high school. Baseball championship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess where the Hanshin Tigers go for their home games during that tournament every year? Oh, where is that? The Osaka Dome. <laughs> <laughs> so they take they take over the Orcs Buffaloes home arena like like for a long period of time every year. So the Orcs Buffaloes get pushed out of their own home stadium for like a long stretch of the year. So it's look, not- I love I love small market teams and basketball. I, mean, I grew up in Indiana. I'm a diehard Indiana Pacers fan. Really, one of the few things I want in life is I want to see a Pacers championship. Like it would just, I since I've moved away from from Indiana, like there's not a ton I miss. But since I've uh, moved from Indiana, I really do have a sense of pride when it comes to the Pacers and a championship would would bring me so much joy but i also understand they're a small market nba team it's never going to happen so wait you know, a second, wait a second. Have... this comparison doesn't work because the orcs bubble is not a small market team they're a big market team that no one gives a fuck about actually what they're what they're closer <laughs> to is I, I my football team again tigers and dodgers and baseball pacers and basketball i i'm an la rams football fan 
Uh, and that, I, I guess, maybe they're the Chargers in this scenario where they're in a big market in L.A., but nobody, nobody cares about them. I mean, even the Rams struggle to generate a lot of interest. The Chargers, there is just no one that could possibly care about what they're doing. Yeah, so I mean, they're they're, the, they're like the Chicago White Sox of NPB, uh, yes. I guess, because like, I, as far as I can tell, the White Sox have way less fans than New York Mets, right? Which yeah, York- I, I uh, worked at a a sporting goods store in Chicago for a long time, and. We could sell, you know, every NBA team that we had in stock, we could sell. We sold a ton of different football teams other than Bears. You could not sell baseball stuff if it was not Cubs related. And granted, this is a a year or two after the World Series went, so people were still riding high off of that. But there's just no market for real White Sox stuff. Like, it's just, unless you are on the South Side or if you just really care about baseball, it, no one in Chicago cares about the White Sox at all. Yeah, I mean, apologies to Rich Craig because I think that's his team. But, you know, <laughs> no one cares. I mean, like, the New York Mets here in New York, I mean, obviously they're number two to the Yankees, but, like, lots of people care about the Mets. The Mets have lots of fans. So it's very, like, from what I understand at least, I think, like, the Mets of MPB or the Tokyo Yakut Swallows, the other Tokyo team. Like, I think people actually do care about them, even though they're way behind the Giants. Whereas the Orcs Buffaloes are the White Sox of MPV, where like no one fucking gives a shit. And I like it. I'm gonna I'm gonna ride that wave because when they are when they are good again and when people start to care, I will be at the front of that bandwagon. I will be the one leading the charge. I'm, I'm telling you, things are gonna change at this organization. They've got Adam Jones now. What could go wrong? Doing the do, so when he his his walk up song by the way is YMCA and it like cuts to the <laughs> it cuts to the video screen of him doing the YMCA dance with like a huge goofy grin on his face. It's pretty good. But the, the thing I really loved discovering this weekend was that, what's his name, Gerardo Parra, the guy who came over from the Nationals? Yeah. He still has Baby Shark as his walk-up song. <laughs> and after he, he hit, like, a three-run home run in the second game with the Giants, and they were all doing the Baby Shark, uh, Shark Chomp. Like all, so all these Japanese dudes in the dugout doing the Baby Shark, Shark Chomp is really funny. So I enjoyed it. God Even, bless Japan. What, what a nation. Yeah. I mean, it's the second. It's the second best baseball league on earth. For people don't know, like it is considered, you know, people consider it like quadruple A, like better than triple A even. So, you know, it's definitely better too than the, the KBO and the yeah. The Taiwan man, league. I I'm really hoping that the the Japanese baseball can get picked up by an MLB network or get tossed onto ESPN as well because. Like, I will have the Korean baseball stuff on in the background, but I've yet to watch a game that has entertained me just because the level of play is just not up to caliber with what I'm used to seeing. Even in college baseball, I watch a lot of college baseball, and th- those kids I've found to be better than, than the Korean league that they're showing on ESPN. Yeah, I think MPB is a lot closer. So, like, just yeah. watching the games this weekend, it, it looks a lot more like MLB. Like, the pitching's definitely not as good. So I think that's very noticeable, but like, you know, everything else I think is pretty damn close. So, um, but yeah, I even got the, the Japanese baseball video game too, which I have been considering ordering it. It has been sitting in my Amazon like wish list. Okay. I can highly recommend it if you want to do it Mm. because I don't know about you. I got really sick of the show this year. Like I, I bought it and then played, I usually play MLB the show every year, but like I bought it and played it for like a game and i don't think i've ever touched it since and just it was way too similar to last year for me and i guess after 
like four or five years of the same thing. It, got, it just got kind of old. Whereas like this baseball game, I don't I don't know if it's like more arcadey, but it's definitely a little probably a little more arcadey. And like the 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 batting interface in general is just a little uh, a little more like pick up and play kind of I guess. And it just seems more fun. I don't know. I think maybe it just seems more fun because I'm so used to the show after all these years. But it just it is really it's fun to just play a different baseball game with different mechanics, and the mechanics still work too. So like it, you know, it's not like it's different and bad. So you know, I, I'm really enjoying I, it. I feel like I played the show for a decade straight because I think I went from MLB 08 the show to MLB 18 the show, and I remember just halfway through the summer of 18 just like you know what these games have all been the same and i they're good games they're well made but i just i can't do it anymore whereas like nba 2k i think is marvelous i i still am i'm not a big video game person but if i'm going to play i typically play nba 2k i actually think the madden franchise i think those games have become more and more fun over the past few years uh i i think it, it lacks like really in-depth modes but i think the gameplay is very fun but it'll be the show it it's so consistently good that it got boring and i just don't know how to rectify that problem yeah so the mpv games are really fun but you just have to or the mpv game uh which is like pro yaku spirits 19 i think and they give you a um a free roster update for 2020 which is really cool because the games don't come out every year they come out like every four years so but yeah i mean like i i, I really enjoy my time with it i'm really you know uh, really enjoy just picking up and playing it and you know getting the hang of it but you will have to look at a lot of like translations online though is the one thing <laughs> and there's a lot of Japanese text in this game so but the, there is like everything is translated like on this website with like images and stuff so it's not really you know it's just like looking at your computer while you play basically yeah uh, okay let's get to the wrestling matches here Yes, as we've alienated our entire European (laughs) listening audience, they have not known what we've been talking about. Even Americans at this point are confused. Let's talk about wrestling, which is universal, thank God. Uh, Jado and Gato versus Masaki Mochizuki and Don Fuji from New Japan Pro Wrestling on January 1st, 2007. Uh, This was, of course, your first pick. It is for the IWGP Junior Tag Team titles held by Jado and Gato. And for the old uh, War International Junior Tag Team titles held at this point by Mochizuki and Fuji. Uh, of course, Dragon Gate kind of used them. They, they basically introduced them as tag titles, you know, for the promotion in, I want to say 2006, right? Yeah, yeah, 2006. And, and then they had them for about a year. Right, because then at, at uh, summer 2007, Muscle Outlaws win the Summer Venture Tag League. And they, quote-unquote, use their prize money to establish the open the twin gate. And then they won, like, a unification match. Although the IJ tag titles get reactivated anyway, so they weren't unified for very long. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Jado and Gato won this match, and I was like, wait, did they unify them here already? But, no, they actually lose them back to uh, Ryosuka in July. So... They, they don't hold yeah, that match, is, uh, that match is at Kobe World 2007, I believe. Right, that's I think that's true, yep. Um, but yeah, so this match, uh, Jado and Gator have been champions since July 2006. Uh, it was their fourth reign as champions. There's only their second defense, though, because they somehow went from July to December without ever defending them. Uh, and then after winning this one, they won't defend them again until May 2007, where they lose them to Dick Togo and Takaminchinoku. So, but they would, as, as mentioned, hold the IJ titles a few months longer. Um, so, why'd you pick this one? What made you think of this one? I guess, and 
uh, you know, just, inter- I guess, tee up the match. So I knew I wanted to have some sort of Dragon Gate representation on the show just because that's what I do. I've been reviewing Dragon Gate on VoicesOfWrestling.com. It'll be five years on July 2nd. I've been co-host of the Open the Voice Gate podcast since its inception with John. I stepped away for a little bit. Mike Spears and I have been co-hosting for a year now with, with consistent updates. But there's not a ton of Dragon Gate that's streaming out there. And while they do have their own streaming service in Dragon Gate Net, which I know, John, you've mentioned that you've enjoyed the archives and the the stunning quality of the early, early Toriumon days, which is a huge plus. Uh, the network has drawbacks, and I just I there's not a ton of people that subscribe to the network, so I wanted to get something a little bit more visible. And this Mochi Fuji versus uh, Jado and Gato match is something that had been sitting in my watch later playlist on YouTube. For at this point, literally years, and I had never seen the match, despite it, you know, having Mochizuki and Fuji, who are two of my favorite wrestlers, Gato, who's great on occasion, and Jado, who's there. But it's uh, John asked me, you know, what matches do you want to talk about, and I, I kind of panicked because I, I just didn't even know where to start. And then I saw this sitting on my watch later. I gave it a watch. I said, yeah, you know what? This match rules. Uh, it's a textbook example of why I love Masaki Mochizuki. I'm going to send this John's way because I think it's worth talking about. And it's just a a delightful junior tag match that feels so uh, just drastically different than the junior tag scene of New Japan today or New Japan during the Rapongi Vice Young Bucks era which i loved all of that stuff i mean i if you have read my work you know i love the young bucks but this feels like it's uh, you know 1995 in war and tenru was watching from the rafters and it just so happens to be taking place you know in 2007 between mochi and fuji who were at this point about to become one of the greatest tag teams in wrestling and then jato and gato who were one of the greatest tag teams in wrestling at this point so for me it was a new match i don't have a ton of emotional attachment to it but i love three of the four guys in this match and it was very fun to watch it uh play out and just to discover new masaki mochizuki footage yeah and it's it's a really fun match it's not anything that like i think will totally blow you away but like as far as you know, Gato and Jado. Well, you know, actually, Gato and Jado might blow your way if you're not used to them being good. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, they have, especially Jado, like, can barely move now. But, like, he, he looks, like, so jacked here. I'm just like, whoa. Like, what the fuck? It's Jack Jado. <laughs> but, like. Yeah, just like, in, like, just a small man, small frame, but jacked. It's, it's, it's actually a very weird sort of body composition he had at this point. Yeah. Uh, and I just like that, you know, I, I always enjoy the interpromotional stuff, so I appreciate that you picked, you know, two interpromotional matches here. But there's just, there's that extra level of heat to it, you know? Uh, so it is really, it is really fun. And yeah, it's, it's in Corkin. It, New Japan has kind of a great library of matches on their YouTube channel, which I don't know if people. Yeah, they're realize. not, they're, they're not on New Japan World for some yeah, reason. Yeah, that's exactly it. You're right. Um, and, and most of the matches they upload onto their YouTube or uploaded, I mean, this was uploaded a decade ago, have no commentary. And seeing 
in hearing rather this is like a match that you almost need to turn up one just because the crowd is hot and it's so refreshing to hear a hot crowd but to hear mochizuki kicking people is an experience in itself i highly highly recommend it so yeah mochizuki and fuji get booed coming out you know because they're representing the outside promotion excuse me and gato and jada look like total badasses here and it is really jarring uh, to to see Jono, you know, and to see him just come out and like look like such a fucking jacked badass, like we were just talking about, and then like you know throughout this match he he goes for the cross face of Jono, which is just such a cool finisher that just I'm sure does not look cool anymore if he can, if he can even do it. I don't, I don't think he even does it anymore because it probably hurts him too much to get down on the mat like that. Yeah, there's just a drop down process there that has to be so uncomfortable given the state of his body. Um, but yeah, so like it's a, you know, what are you going to do there? But yeah, there's, there's like a, you know, there's a long Fuji heat, heat segment that like features some really old school stuff, including like whipping him into the exposed turnbuckle and stuff that maybe goes on a little too long. But like by the time Fuji finally fires back with this huge Larry Longato and then gets the hot tied to Mochi, uh, everything after that, which is like about the 15 minute mark. Like, and there was some good stuff early, too, anyway. But, like, everything after the 15-minute mark is just fucking awesome. Uh, like, Mochizuki comes in with this huge springboard dropkick on both guys. Like, levels them both with middle kicks. And, like you said, he was, like, just kicking the shit out of both of them. Um, but then when he tries for the Lamagistral on Jado, Jado, like, rolls through the Lamagistral and gets right into the cross face of Jado, which is an awesome counter. Uh, Fuji breaks it up almost immediately, then tags back in and starts, like, laying into Jada with chops and a lariat. It's always fun watching Don Fuji just beat people's asses, which he does. He doesn't do it enough, but when he does, it's really good. Uh, and then Jado, but Jado gets the crossface of Jada on him instead, uh, and that, that actually goes on for a bit, but Mochi breaks free of Gator on the outside and makes, dives in to save. And then there's this, like, really big wild stretch run. Like, Fuji hits, Fuji hits Gator with a massive Nodoa Otoshi, uh, and Mochizuki hits a dragon suplex hold for two. Uh, he kicks the shit out of Gato again. But when he when he hits the ropes, Jado hits him with, with a chair from the outside. As Gato, like, collapses into the ref to distract him. It's great. One of those great, like, um, over-the-top ref distraction spots. Where instead of Where you could have just pulled him out of the way or something. But he, he went over the top with it. Uh, Jado comes in, but then gets leveled by a Fuji Lariat. But Gato tosses him to the floor. Mochizuki tries for another suplex on Gato, but Gato, like, shoves the ref and hits a low blow, and then goes for the pin with the Gato clutch, but it's a 2.99 kick out. Uh, and then Gato and Jado follow it up with a double-team superpower off the top, and then the superfly splash from Gato on Mochizuki, and that's finally enough for the pin, making them the double champions. Uh, pretty fucking awesome, a truly incredible stretch run, and like I said, maybe the heat segment is a little boring, but everything after that really picks up. I would go four and a quarter. I have the exact same rating on this match, okay. and it's it, it's so fun, because I don't know how many of your listeners either watch Gate or if they do, I don't know how many of them listen to our show, but it was important for me to find a Mochizuki match, because something that Mike Spears and I constantly harp on on our show is this idea that Masaki Mochizuki, to me, is undoubtedly one of the 10 best wrestlers of all time. And that might sound jarring because he's stuck away in a promotion that although they're the second biggest in Japan, they're ignored by the press. There's a bias against them in the Western market. Like, people just aren't 
diving into Mochizuki rewatch projects unless it is me or Mike Spears doing it. So I get it. But Mochizuki is a Kawada tier, a Hashimoto tier, a Ric Flair tier level of professional wrestler. So whenever he goes cross promotion and wrestles uh, in All Japan or wrestles in Noah or in this case, New Japan, it's very exciting. And then his partner, Don Fuji, is someone who has miraculously kind of battled comedy or I guess inter interweaved comedy and being the serious ass kicker at the same time for his entire career. You know, Fuji never wrestled in America or for Dragon Gate USA. Uh, and the only time he worked a notable match in America was he did PWG, but he did comedy matches against Stalkery Chikawa and PWG. So we only really know Don Fuji in the Dragon Gate environment. And although this is a junior tag, so it's not that far of a stretch from his normal house style, it was exciting for me to see Fuji outside of the Dragon Gate ring because he is another guy who can hang with anybody uh, who has had a marvelous 25-year career at this point. So yeah, four and a quarter for me, just a, a fun match that I can't believe it took me this long to watch. Yeah, it's really good. I'm glad I watched it as well. So, uh, you know, definitely, you know, pretty much all the the New Japan, like, late aughts, like, interpromotional stuff is really good. And we're going to have another one here from the Noah Feud in 09 uh, in a couple of matches. But, like, the Zero One stuff from 08, if you've never seen it, is really good. Uh, you know, all this New Japan Dragon Gate stuff is really good. I mean, like, I re we need more New Japan interpromotional stuff because this stuff is awesome. But nobody wants to work with them because they try to rate everybody's company. So, <laughs> but they, we'll see if they. There's been little hints, so maybe we'll get like you know, like fucking uh, you know, Kiyomiya wants to fight Okada and stuff. But, I hope Okada squashes him like a bug, and uh, that is no disrespect to Kiyomiya, who look, he's not he's not my ace. Okay, have you seen I, Have it, you seen him lately though? He looks jacked. He looks he looks good. I think he's a very fine wrestler but if he thinks he's gonna step up to the rainmaker my friend he has another thing coming i hope Osquata, okada squashes that geek i was so annoyed when i read that headline that i want me i want keep me to win i want keep me to win like, a match and then okada can get his one back at the dome or something like miyohara like okay i i understand that miyohara again not my favorite wrestler but he's he's phenomenal he's very good and has at least built up you know some legitimate sort of credibility as an ace Keo Mia, on the other hand i mean come on brother you are not on okada's level mm. i guess we'll say okada miyahara they never do because they'd never be able to book a finish so <laughs> yeah, uh, yes yeah that is true although i'd like to see it it would be fun yeah um okay so match number two was my first pick uh, Naruki Dori, Masato Yoshino, Magnitu Kishiwada versus Shingo Takagi, BB Hulk, and Cyber Kong from Dragon Gate on July 1st, 2007. Uh, it's, of course, from Kobe World 2007. This is New Hazard defending the Triangle Gate belts they've had, you know, since May 07, not long after their formation in mid-April. Um, and, you know, this is... I, I always say this is, like, one of my favorite DG matches ever if not my favorite one of, like, the Dragon Gate, the post-Toriumon era, which I remember I said that on a podcast with uh, Jay on it, you know, from, like, DGJ, and, like, he was greatly confused because he's like, you know the finish <laughs> is fucked up, right? But but I don't care. Like, those were his exact words. And I'm like, but, yeah. but I was like, but I don't care. I love this match. Uh, it's two, 
if not my two all-time favorite DG units of all time, it's, like, very close. I mean, these Muscle Outlaws are fucking awesome. I think they're, they're super underrated as a heel unit. They were so much fun and, you know, like, in a very goofy vein sometimes, but they always were a lot of fun as a heel unit and had, like, one of my... had maybe my favorite heel theme song ever. It's so good. Love Idiot Outlaw. But, uh... And New Hazard were awesome, too. I mean, they were just, like, you know, all these young punks getting together to you know, stand up against Typhoon, and they basically came together to be like, hey, Typhoon, hey, Muscle Outlaws, you both suck. And it's just it's such a great little angle. Um, and they were kind of, I mean, they were, I like Muscle Outlaws, but, like, Typhoon was a pretty stupid face unit. And they were just like, oh, here's all the all the faces from all these other units just together now for no real explanation. And, you know, I thought it was, I thought they were, like, kind of right to, to point out that Typhoon was kind of stupid. So... Yeah, Typhoon lacked a strong aesthetic. You know, even units like uh, Dia Hearts or Monster Express, who have been criticized for not necessarily being these great face units in the uh, the era of Dragon Gate face units, like, at least with Monster Express, you can go, okay, best friends in the orange and black. I know who they are. I know what they look like. Dia Hearts, sort of a similar thing with the gold and the silver and their thing, if, you know, other than Big R Shimizu, was that they wore baggy pants. That was a crucial part of that unit that I think people forget about. But with Typhoon, it was like, well, Shima's wearing face paint and a bunch of guys are there. Whereas <laughs> Muscle Outlaws, you know, very clear aesthetic, very clear message with that group. And the new hazard, I mean, you're putting Shingo... You're putting Hulk, you're putting Cyber Kong long before he embarrassed himself and the company. Yamato's in there. You have sprinkles of Jack Evans here and there. Like, New Hazard is a very, very exciting unit that was the the launching pad for that first generation of Drangate Dojo, guys. Yeah, it's just a really, really cool unit in a really cool period. So, you know, I definitely like they're, they're not around very long. I mean, it's pretty much just one year and then you get the new hazard split where like they they merge with what's left of muscle outlaws because speed muscle leave to form wrestle one and they merge with what's left of muscle outlaws to form real hazard which is a real a weird story real hazard i mean real hazard starts out really well but like they they have to turn shingo back face right away and like I don't know, it just doesn't it doesn't really work that well. But I mean, I I think the unit kind of finds itself a little bit, and then by the time it really finds itself, they immediately break up again and like go off to uh because like I really like late oh nine real hazard, but then it like immediately becomes uh you know fucking deep drunk, which sucks. But yeah, yeah so it's certainly real hazard at the very least. You could see the formation of Yamato becoming the company ace in that unit on Open the Voice Gate for the past three months now. We've been rewatching every Dragon Gate USA show, and we will continue to do so until we are done with it. And there's not a ton of real hazard stuff because DG USA forms in mid 2009, and then by the start of the year, they are on their way out. So you really only get the Yamato matches and then one Genki Horiguchi and Ryo Saito match against the Young Bucks on the second show. And Real Hazard is not a unit that I think particularly fondly of. I think partially because I just think Horiguchi and Saito are so much better as baby faces than they are heels. And 
their I, I feel like they just couldn't shine in that unit and everybody sort of struggled with the exception of Yamato who while representing Real Hazard in Dragon Gate USA has a singles match against Davey Richards which is phenomenal. Uh, the bright spot of the Dragon Gate USA rewatch has been unironically enjoying Davey Richards matches which I certainly wasn't anticipating on doing but yeah Real Hazard is a, a troubling unit just because there's so much good and I also think there's a lot of bad during that timeline but to circle back to this six man it's guys in the and i maybe not the prime of their careers i think it's one of those things where their their physical abilities were at a peak and especially in the case of doi and yoshino who went on five or six years later to really put it all together as wrestlers and in the case of shingo takagi who is uh, maybe pound for pound still the best wrestler in the world you know they've developed into these other kinds of wrestlers as their careers have gone but if you look at the summer of 2007 like this seems like the physical peak for a lot of these guys and and i don't love it as much as you do but i do really love this match yeah i mean like that it's like the peak of their especially doing yoshino like you said it feels like the peak of their powers you know like just like this is like the end of i mean this is you know, towards the end of Yoshino as a heel, which I really enjoyed. I know some people were like, well, he wasn't a good heel anyway, but I thought he was, you know, some of his heel spots here that you never see him do again, because unlike Doi, who of course would go back to be a heel a million times, like, this is it for Yoshino. Like, they never, break- Yeah, once he turns face in what, 2008 and joins World 1, he's never he's never been a heel since. And yeah. You know, I, I don't know if, if you were still on the podcast at this point, I don't remember the exact scenario, but you know, the beginning of 2017, the rumor going in was, hey, it's going to be Doi versus Yoshino at World that year, and Yoshino is going to be the one that's healed. And then at the start of the year, one of the first shows of 2017, Yoshino has this horrific injury that people thought he was going to retire from wrestling altogether, or at the very least was going to miss an entire year of in-ring action. And then he returned four months later and proceeded to once again be a very good wrestler his his it was like a john cena asked like oh i'm hurt but i'm gonna keep working through it it's like well uh, maybe sit this one out but yoshino's the company man he is mr drangate and he came back but yeah no yoshino's an awesome heel i've been uh in my free time watching all of the 2005 dragon gate footage that's out there and so you see yoshino turn in March, and then he becomes a really featured player in Blood Generation throughout the entire year, and I love him as a heel, just because it's, I mean, it's so different than how most people think of Masato Yoshino, but also, I just, I think he's a really good heel. Yeah, I think he's really, I mean, there's like a couple spots that you'll never see from him again, like when he, you know, like, does that, I love that spot where he does a low blow, and then fakes his own low blow, so the referee doesn't know who was actually low blowed. It's just a great spot. But, uh, you know, I just, he never, obviously he can never do that as a baby face. But, like, it's just, you know, one of those things that I miss from him. But, yeah, he's a great heel. Doi, obviously, you know, even though he would turn face with Yoshino, we would see B a heel many more times. Uh, this is the end of Kishiwada as a heel, though, too. Because after this, like, he doesn't, he's one of the few non-speed muscle, speed muscle members who doesn't go on to new, ha- or to new Hazard, or real Hazard. Because he just kind of, like, goes off to join uh, Zetsujins, I guess, with Mochizuki and Fuji. So, 
It's kind of it, yeah. It's a, it's a shame. I I love Kishiwada. I think yeah. he's excellent in this match. Uh, and the very little bit of Osaka Pro footage I've seen, I think he's very good as well. And it's it's a bummer that I think his sort of time period in Dragon Gate is a little bit lost. And I think especially with the current, I guess, navigating of history, I will say in Dragon Gate as they attempt to ignore. Shima, uh, basically giving him the Crispin Wa treatment, you know, just pretending he doesn't exist. Like most of Kishiwada's run is tied to Shima in some way, shape, or form. I mean, they headline Kobe World 2006, and that's just the sort of stuff that is not going to be brought up, thus not remembered by any uh, longtime fans that it might not just be on their mind. And, and certainly for new fans, they're not going to have any idea that Kishiwada at one point was a power player in this company. And I think this is. This is a showcase for Magnitude Kishiwada. I really liked him here and didn't didn't remember liking him so much the first time I had watched this match. Yeah, as there's... Can you hear these fireworks in the background? They're really going off. <laughs> uh, they love... They fucking love fireworks. The frogs, not I swear to God. Uh, but yeah, so like, this is, Kishiwada's awesome in this match. I mean, just... Everybody's great in here. Even CyberCon, like you mentioned before. You know, this is just a great match for him, too. And, you know, he was always better in tags and trios matches because... Uh, you know, it's just kind of more of his thing, especially at, at this time. But when he could run in and do a giant pineapple bomber, he's going to look a lot better than when he yeah, has to exactly. carry. Yeah, exactly. He should have never been booked in a singles match. This should be his role uh, from, you know, this match in 2007. It should have sustained this entire run. The idea of any sort of credible, serious Cyberpunk singles push, I have always found to be so outlandish and unnecessary. So the match opens with, like, a, you know, there's a big brawl to the floor. And then, like, everybody pairs off in the ring, which is a really cool little, like, they all do, like, a really cool little sequence. Like, there's a Kong and Kishiwada as the powerhouses. Like, they do these shoulder blocks and, you know, they basically just keep running into each other before Kong finally wins and knocks him down, which is pretty great. Uh, Yoshino and Hulk tag in for the speed showcase. And Hulk actually does a great job keeping up with him. It's been so long with Hulk, like, being you know, increasingly deteriorate, increasingly deteriorating that I sometimes forget how fucking fast he could be. But, you know, he was great here just keeping up with Yoshino and, like, you know, with the fancy arm drags and stuff. And then Shingo and Doi come in and, like, you know, Shingo hits this huge TKO on Doi, which I feel like is a move. I, I can't remember the last time I saw Shingo Takagi do a TKO, but it looks pretty great. Um, one of the big takeaways from the Dragon Gate USA rewatch has been just how good BB Hulk was at one point. I think it's something that as a community we have all forgotten about because at this point Hulk, like in his current state, is very big and very broken down. Now, I still think he has value and is still capable of putting on very good matches, but they look nothing like a good 2007 or a good 2009 BB Hulk match. And, you know, here he's jumping around. He's doing that like backhand cartwheel thing as a reversal to a clothesline. He's bouncing all over the place. It's like you said, it's refreshing to watch this era of BB Hulk. And then we get like a, what, probably my, the best spot of the entire match, honestly, is when Kishiwada does that gigantic splash from the top rope to Hulk on the floor through the table, which it just looked perfect. And he, he had to leap so far and you always forget like how awesome Kishiwada was, you know, um, like just what a giant leap it was. It was such a, such a great leap. 
Um, and then he follows it up with his screaming stomps, which I know some people hated those, but I always found them hilarious. Yeah, I like them too. He's <laughs> like, I can't even really do it. He's just like, ah! And, just, <laughs> and it just keeps stopping him. Oh, it's so great. And like the way he like frames it too, it's a great heel spot. Um, then we have the Yoshino fake low, low blow slash fake low blow. You know, the phantom low blow that he's selling so the ref can't know he actually did it. I mentioned that earlier. It's a great spot. We get the big multi-way drop kick in the middle with Genki and I think Gamma running in to help. Uh, but then Shingo comes back finally after Hulk. Uh, you know, Hulk is like getting his ass kicked forever. But Shingo comes back by beating them over the head with a piece of the table they broke. That was awesome. Like, I love that he just comes in with this piece of the table and is like, you want to break a table? Then I'll break it over your heads. <laughs> it was great. Uh, it's just a total house. There's so much rage and fury behind it. It's unbelievable. It, it is, in, in a weird way, it is like the ultimate babyface fire comeback, but instead of, you know, hitting a drop kick and a few clotheslines, he's beating someone over the head with a part of a table. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And then the, you would get the, uh, you know, he does like a, a double... Uh, a double clothesline on both Doi and Yoshino. Or not double clothesline. It's like a double like DDT and Bulldog at once on Doi and Yoshino. And then he does a rare Shingo plancha. Which, you know, I can't remember seeing too many of those. Uh, Hulk follows it up with an awesome moonsault all the way to the floor. Leading, leading off to the Kong and Kishiwada. And they have a big Larry and Pineapple bottle, pineapple Bomber. I almost said Pineapple Bottle. <laughs> battle that Kong wins. Pineapple Bomber Battle. Try saying that three times fast. Uh, the Kong wins that battle, and then he hits both members of Speed Monster with it too. Uh, and then we get what you ju- what you can just describe. Where I stopped trying to recap it, the big Dragon Gate sequence where everyone running through and hitting everyone. You know, I mean, like at some point you just get tired of typing, but everybody runs in and hits a million moves on everybody else uh, until Doi pulls the ref in the way of a Hulk springboard kick. So all the Muscle Outlaws members run in and do the train in the corner. But then two can play at that game because. Jack Evans uh, comes in with the handspring elbow for New Hazard and then gives Doi the 630. Great spot. And Hulk follows up with the EVO but only gets two. Uh, Muscle Outlaws recover and Doi hits the Bakatari sliding kick. Still one of the best sliding kicks in all of wrestling. But on Hulk, but only gets two. They follow up with the... They, they try to go for like a triple... Or they do get it. A triple team doomsday device with both members of Speed Muscle hitting the clothesline on Hulk with Kishiwada... Uh, holding him up. That was a great spot. And then Kishawa hits the power bomb and the homicidal body press, but Hulk ki- still kicks out. Great kick out. Uh, and Hulk counters another power bomb attempt with a Rana for a two count, but then K- Kishawa absolutely beheads him with a really sick ass lariat. I love lariats and I love axe bombers, so this is definitely my match. But that also only gets two. Uh, and then Kishawa finally hits the last ride, but Kong dives in to save. Great, great, like, uh, pinfall save there. And then Kong hits a gigantic pineapple bomber on Yoshino for two. He follows up with the cyber bomb, but Doi saves. And then Gamma go- misses the protein powder attack, which I swear to God, that the Gamma with the protein powder powder must have missed way more times than it ever hit. I wouldn't trust it. If, <laughs> if he was if he was an arm in my bullpen, he would not be getting the call in a big game. I do not trust Gamma in his throwing abilities. <laughs> so uh, th- there's the all maybe the all time great. Um, like Dragon Gate spot was when Gamma and and Conda were feuding, and uh, like Gamma and Conda had kept like accidentally throwing stuff at each other and hitting each other with stuff. And there's a great moment where Gamma like puts his arms up like no no don't do it don't do it 
And, or no, it's, maybe it's the other one. Maybe it's, I think it's actually Kanda. Kanda puts his arms like, don't do it, don't do it. And Gamma pauses, clearly sees it's him, shrugs, and just throws it in his face anyway. <laughs> it's such a great moment. That, uh, that is terrific, although I was thoroughly shaken by Gamma and Kanda and then followed by all-time great. That just wasn't computing <laughs> with the ones and zeros oh, in my head. Kanda's, I was very Kanda, concerned. Kanda's, Kanda was great at one point. I don't know what he's doing now, but... He was fine. He's fine now. Once now that he's not like an overbearing heel and he's just an old guy in the Toriumon unit, he's doing all right again. He hits his drop kick and goes home. He's not in. Oh, he's out of red already. Even yes. Know. Yeah. He's he's bad. It's been a it's been a needed change. He's became much more entertaining once he left Red. Yeah. I mean, there was a point where like, you know, I get why they'd always put him back in the heel unit, but this last one, it was like okay. Probably yeah, time to leave not, him. Not good. Leave him with the legends, I think. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so then we got a big, crazy reversal sequence with Shingo and Yoshino that ends with yeah another pumping bomber. And I don't even what move is this that he's doing? Is this a bloodfall? It definitely. I was, believe that is the bloodfall. Yes. It was definitely not supposed to be the finish because this is a famous messed up finish, and you can tell. I probably he was supposed to hit the bloodfall. Yoshino was supposed to kick out because he never pinned with the bloodfall. It's like his fourth finisher down or something because he had like five hundred finishers already at this point. But like this was well below like you know the main Japan or the you know at the time the last falconry now called last of the dragon. But, you know, Yoshino's supposed to kick out, but the ref counts three anyway, even though he did kick out. So that's the famous messed up finish. So I can't go the full five when the finish is fucked up, but I love this fucking match. It always holds up for me. Just nonstop action, especially down the stretch. Everything looks perfect except that stupid fucking ref fucking up the count. And everyone's at the absolute top of their games. It's four and three quarters for me. I, yeah, you you are 100% right that Shingo at this point already had about 500 finishers, and they're all roughly the same move, <laughs> which makes it so much harder to tell which is which. Like, I feel comfortable saying I have watched more Shingo than just about anybody. Like, I consume everything this man does, and even I'm like, oh, I, I think it was the Bloodfall. I'm really not sure, because they're all kind of the same, and it's super, super annoying. Yes, the finish is messed up. I think for that, uh, much like John, I'd knock off a quarter star, so I end up at four and a half stars for this. I think if you are looking to get into Dragon Gate, if you are a Dragon Gate fan and for some reason you haven't seen this, then obviously go watch it. But I think for the newer fans or someone just entirely unfamiliar with this promotion or with the style, I think this is a really good entry point because you have, like, you know, to come full circle, Two units with defined aesthetics, with defined uh, messages, and you know, young guys for good and new hazard, young guys for bad, and muscle outlaws. And then the last ten minutes of this match. I mean, that closing stretch. It's they're the only company in the world that can do it. I say constantly. You know, if you watch a Drangate uh, Kobe Sambo Hall show, which would be the equivalent of uh, their television tapings i can't because a new japan cork and yeah kind of but it's you know it's just another stop on the tour for Gate. but they always they always film those shows but it's certainly not a cork and certainly not a pay-per-view but if you look at the main event six-man tags on a kobe sambo hall show even if they're four stars to me it's like okay well that match happened but if those match and those matches happen in any other company new japan wwe aew it would become the talk of the hardcore bubble of, I mean, especially if casual fans saw matches like this, it would, it would blow their minds. It, there's just nothing like it, but there is such a level of excellence that is assumed in Dragon Gate 
that somehow a match like this can really not be looked at as some sort of heralded classic, even though it really is. Yeah, so I, I absolutely love this match, and I do wish more people would watch it, but it's a, you know, it is what it is. Uh, match number three here, your second pick, Go Shiozaki and Takashi Sugera versus Shinsuke Nakamura and Milano Collection AT from Noah on March 1st, 2009. Uh, before you introduce it and why you picked it, I mean, I'm almost certain I've never seen this before, so I had no idea what to expect, and I was very excited because, uh, you know, these are all four guys I like quite a lot. Uh, I'm shocked is, you hadn't seen this. Yeah, I guess I just, you know, just a blind spot, I guess. Um, but this is like during the famous uh, New Japan versus Noah feud. And, you know, Nakamura and Milano come out with Hiroki Goto and Taichi because they're all in Rise together. Uh, it's really weird seeing Taichi in like a... I mean, Rise were not faces, but they weren't like the heel unit either. They were like the in-between at the time because GBH were the heels. Uh, Nakamura, of course, is almost exactly one month away from betraying Rise on April 5th to join up at most of GBH to form Chaos. So, you know, this Rise is not long for this world at this point. But yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, interesting little unit here. And, you know, they Rise, I think, continued on technically after Nakamura left to form Chaos. But, you know, they, they kind of like just peter out after that, I believe. I don't think they even make it through all of 2009. Uh, but yeah, so they get booted out of the building here since they're the invaders. But yeah, which is a great little, you know, this is at the Budokan, I think, right? Uh, yes, yeah. This is a, this is a big Noah show. Two thousand nine Noah attendance is certainly on the decline at this point. But as we'll we'll kind of talk about as we go into this match, two thousand nine Noah a just stunningly great in ring year for the promotion. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it is what it is. I mean, it's a really, it's a, wait, so you said 2009 Noah is a stunningly great year? Yes, yeah, okay. I, I love 2009 Noah. I haven't seen a lot of it, so I have to I have to go back and check it out. But uh, it isn't, that's the year Masawa dies, right? Yes, so, so. <laughs> the, it's, it, Masawa dies, which I think largely and rightfully so throws off the main event scene a little bit because, you know, Junakiyama wins the GHC belt and then he vacates it. And then Shiozaki wins it and loses it to his partner in this match, Takashi Segura, in December of that year. And then Segura goes on to have like an 18-month reign with the title. But if you watch 2009 Noah from... You actually have to start at Wrestle Kingdom of that year in the uh, New Japan versus Noah offer match, which as I scramble on cage match to pull up the exact participants of that match, I know this match is on New Japan World, but it is the last great Masawa match. It's Hiroki Goto and Shinsuke Nakamura versus Takashi Segura and Mitsuhara Masawa from the Dome. So if you start there and then watch what Noah is out there, which 2009 I think circulates pretty well still, you can keep going through basically October, which is when Kenta gets hurt. Kenta is never really the same after the injury he suffers in October of 2009, but you have Kenta versus Nakajima, which creates a lot of Kensuke office versus Noah matches. There's uh, June 22nd, 2009. There's a Kenta and Goshiozaki versus Kensuke Sasaki and Katsuhiko Nakajima match from Korkin. That is a five-star tag. It is utterly phenomenal. And most of what Kenta does that entire year 
is next level great up until his injury, but then you also get the New Japan versus Noah feud in the first half of the year, which you have the Tokyo Dome match. Uh, there's a Hiroki Goto and Kazuchika Okada versus Segura and Aoki match. Uh, there's a Kenta Kobashi tag where he teams with uh, Akihiko Ito against Tenzan and Okada. There's a Shiozaki versus Okada singles match. Like there's a ton of interesting stuff that just happens to involve Okada as a as a young line at that point. But the New Japan Noah stuff is is really really strong from that year and i think just because masawa dies and then business takes such a nosedive that I, I i don't know what the perception was like at the time but i know now it's like oh well noah was really great in 2003 2004 2005 and then rikio wins the belt and things stop but that is that is not the case because 2009 noah is i think the last like true green mat like this is pro wrestling noah I think it ends in 2009, but that calendar year is really, really strong. Yeah, it's, it is really. It's a very good year uh, from everything I've heard, too. But, like, the Misawa death, I think, really just holds a cloud over everything. Yeah, and so, rightfully so. Yeah. Uh, as far as this match, it starts really strong with uh, Shinsuke and Sugera trading blows. Um, Sugera hits a big spear to end that sequence, and they do some nice-looking mat wrestling after that. Uh, Milano and Go have an exchange, mostly centering around Go being like heavier than Milano. Uh, not super exciting stuff, but still good. And this crowd is like so vicious, though, that they boo Shinsuke out of the building just for jumping off the apron to dodge an attempted Go cheap shot. Like, Go is clearly the one trying to cheap shot him and hit him while he's just standing on the apron. And they get very angry when Shinsuke has the temerity to not stand there and get hit. It is really funny, like, just how partisan a crowd this is. Uh, they also get very mad at Milano just for rolling to the floor. Um, and Milano throughout this match, I mean, Milano is the biggest dickhead. Shinsuke, at this point, is still, you know, working very generic babyface. I mean, he's he's good. I mean, he's really good in this match, actually. But, like, you could tell this is when he he had just figured out how to work at all, you know? <laughs> like, you know, like we Alan and I were talking about on the Patreon, which... Uh, I forgot to plug, which I should have plugged way before this, but uh, patreon.com slash wrestlingomikaze, $5 a month. You can listen to my the two exclusive episodes I did with Alan Farrell and with Rich Krejci. They're both out now, and they're both on the Patreon. But anyway, so Alan and I, uh, we talked all about the, you know, the... What, what am I trying to say here? Like the how, like how Nakamura was like, you know... Because Alan's been watching a lot of 2004 New Japan, and he was like, "Well, Nakamura was terrible. Like he had no, no idea what the fuck he was doing." And I'm like, "Well, I mean, I was just watching him from like 2008 in the Zero One Max feud, and he was already pretty damn great there." And what Alan basically said was, "Well, he kind of figures it out in 08. Basically, is when he figures out. Like he doesn't figure out like the charisma or the swagger part of it until like 2011. Like that's about when the the Nakamura. They think you know modern fans." would most recognize really comes into focus but like by 08 into obviously into 09 he's at least figured out the in-ring work part like he's at least you know really you know quite sharp in the middle in the ring and i think this match is a you know a good example he looks really good in this match but yeah i mean like it, it took him a while i mean he was coming from this we he was coming from an enoki you know mindset of like you know what made a good wrestler and like he came in right in the middle of this transition away from that and you know the the end of the Inoki era and had to like basically you know take his natural skills and then like 
translate them into a different, you know, the different as New Japan became a different style of company. But you know, he did figure it out eventually. So like, I mean, there's there is definitely a world where he never figures it out because he has so many competing, you know, interests and competing, uh, you know, like mindsets and stuff. So, John, have you read Nakamura's book? I had never read the book. I, I would recommend it. I, I just I finished up most of it over the past few weeks, and it's it's very interesting. I wish we had more translated literature, I'll call it, out there like this, because, I mean, Nakamura is very thorough in detailing the dojo process and, and detailing his debut, which was rushed, and then he came in as the super rookie, and, and just it, he never really had his footing up until about this point, and then... Just for fun, I was going back and watching some 2014 G1 stuff last week because that was that was the first G1 that I followed in real time. And I just remember loving that tournament so much. And I think it's lost now because he is what he is in WWE, and it's such a shame. But like 2014, 2015 Nakamura, I mean, there was not a cooler wrestler on the planet. And, and seeing the in-ring aspect that he has in this match where he's clearly a good wrestler, but then the charisma that he adds after his trip to Mexico, he's such a superpower and such this dominant force, but it's also fun now that he has that in-ring capability to watch him here where he is lapped in charisma by Milano Collection AT. I mean, Milano is the heat magnet and to me the real star of this match. Yeah, especially from the New Japan side. I would say like Goshozaki is still very young here and still like figuring it out besides just being like this raw rookie, you know, who's already, I think he's going to win the title this year. Right. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah. He, well, he's, he's three months away from winning the title. It's yeah. this. He looks go, way too, way too early. Way but too he's, soon. he's really starting to figure it out because at this point he has done his excursion. He's done ROH. He's done FIP and, and watching this match again, cause this is the match that I've loved for, for quite a while now, but I rewatched it for this podcast. I, I was like, Oh my God, like go. Go really has something here. Then he has the the June tag with Kenta that I talked about, where I think I think that is a five star match, and I just think Go is uh, just absurdly great in there. So Go is is putting the the foundations of being a great wrestler together. But the issue with Go that I think has always been there is there's never really been a super charismatic element to it. There, I mean, I, his I think at this point what is widely considered to be his best match is the Joe Doring match from January 2015. And that is because it feels like you're watching a Hanson versus Kobashi match. I mean, the dynamics are, it feels like more archetype characters because we know where those two men, where their lineage leads, and they were able to do something above what a Kobashi Hanson cosplay would be. They were able to put their own spin on it. But so often, Shiozaki is like, wow, that was good, but who cares? Like he just, I, I've never had a great emotional attachment to him here, and that was kind of what I was left with in this match. Was wow, Shiozaki's really good, but look at Milano, and wow, Segura had so much power in some of those spots, and even Nakamura is just captivating in his own way, and goes maybe the best wrestler in the match, but also somehow the least entertaining. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Like, his lariats and his chops were great, but, like, to me, he doesn't have, like, the presence of a guy who's going to be world champion in three months. So, no, you know, yes, was, that, that is a well said, yes. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I honestly think, like, his current run maybe is a, the, one of the best of his career when it comes to that. Like, he does look like an ace now to me, at least. But, like, 2009 Go really didn't look like one to me. 
Um, but yeah, so there's a, you know, there's basically a, Shinsuke starts working on Ghost's leg for a while. Uh, there's a great moment where Shinsuke, like, has him in a single leg Boston Crab. And Sugera, this is where Sugera had, like, so much presence even back then. He just, like, swaggers into the ring like a fucking badass and starts forming him right in the face to break it up. And Shinsuke, of course, won't let go of first, which the crowd, again, gets very mad about. And, like, you're booing him for being too tough to break a Boston Crab? I don't know. It's really, really, a uh, really vicious crowd. But that leads into a Shinsuke Go strike exchange where Go starts, like, really lighting him up with the chops. Uh, and then Go hits a gigantic super kick out of nowhere. Finally tags in Sugera, who immediately spears Shinsuke, which I love his spears. They're so good this match. Um, and then he and Milano try to double-team Sugera, uh, or Shinsuke, like, gets back up, and he and Milano try to double-team Sugera, which the crowd really doesn't like. But Sugera goes, like, nuts on both guys to a huge ovation. Uh, and there's, like, a big German suplex by Sugera on Shinsuke for two. Uh, Sugera's suplex has always looked awesome. And Shinsuke comes back with a power slam and reverse power slam. Uh, both of those, I kind of wish it looked better. They didn't look as crisp as they could have. But Shigeru makes up for it by dropping Shinsuke right on his fucking head on the next German. Just a ridiculously sick German suplex. Uh, Shinsuke comes back with his own awesome-looking German right back, you know, right back to him. And then both guys are down. So it's a little... Definitely one of the cooler sequences of the match. Um, there's a really great strike exchange with Shinsuke and Sugera that includes Shinsuke just, like, punching Sugera right in the face, which I always loved when he did that. It was a great, like... It's just a, such a dick move in Japanese wrestling to punch a dude, so... Uh, Go comes in, like, just starts chomping the, chopping the shit out of him again. Not chomping, chopping. <laughs> and Shinsuke, he's, he's not a... What's, what's it called? He's not a para. There's <laughs> a little shark. Or baby oh, yes. shark. <laughs> uh, call back to earlier. Uh, Shinsuke starts firing back with lots of kicks, but Go catches his leg and then chops him midair. Which is a great, great spot. But Shinsuke gets a triangle out of nowhere, which he was he was great with those triangles. He stopped doing it at a certain point, but like he would get these triangles out of nowhere and just like take down right into the arm bar, which is what he did here. He turned it into a cross arm breaker. It, it always looked really good. Um, you know, even when he was bad, I think he was still had like really good triangles. Uh, but Sugera comes in to save pretty much immediately when he gets the arm breaker. Uh, we get a cool little Milano and Go exchange, but when Go hits the Fisherman's Buster and goes up top of the Moonsault, Milano pulls the ref down as a human shield to stop him, and it's like, Milano doesn't give a fuck. He's going full heel here. He's going to use this Noah ref to prevent the Moonsault no matter what it takes. Um, he tries to, like... He basically tries to powerbomb him off the ropes, but Go turns into Awkward Rana, for a two count, which that looked bad. That was one of the few spots in the match that looked outright bad. Uh, but then Go shrugs off Milano's Enzigiri and, and like beheads him with a lariat. Looks like it looks like, fucking awesome. Uh, Shinsuke makes the save though, and then we get like a double team knee drop from Sugera and that like I don't know what do you know what that power bomb is called that he does here? It's like I can't remember. No, I got I got nothing okay. on the name of that power bomb. Yeah, it's like a weird power bomb, right? Where like he pulls them up, kind of. I think there's a term for it, but I don't I don't remember the name of it. But yeah, Shinsuke makes the save, and then Sugera hits like this massive Olympic slam. He always hit the Olympic slam so much cooler than Kurt Angle did. I mean, like they they always look like he dropped him right on the neck, which yeah, it's I, it's super high angle and just looks quite honestly just super dangerous. Yeah. Um, and then we get you know a. After that, we get Milano with this crazy, like, 
Gorgo hits Balan with this crazy chop and lariat combo, ending with this huge spinning lariat for two. Uh, Milano Matrix dodges the big standing lariat, which is such a cool spot, and gets a backslide for two. He goes for an inside cradle, but Go rolls right through it into the Go Flasher, which looks so cool. And then he hits a huge lariat for the three count. Like, just runs, bounces off one end of the ropes and bounces off the other end of the pen. Uh, yeah, this fucking rules. Like, there's some awkward spots, but, like, it's still a fantastic fucking match with amazing crowd heat, really hard-hitting wrestling, and head drops, all the shit I love. It's four and a half stars for me. It is not the last, but it is one of the last great Milano Collection AT matches because this takes place in March of 2009. He would retire in September of 2009. And the Matrix spot that you just mentioned is sort of the moment where you go, oh, oh my God, this this match is really something. It happens at the very end of the match, but it just needed that signature spot, that thing that you can take away from it to really make it stand out. And the Milano matrix spot there is exactly what it is. And, you know, Milano is someone that comes from the dragon, the dragon system, you know, a Toriyaman 2000 guy with the ace of that class proceeded to kill it in the ring in Dragon Gate, even if at times he was uh, buried by Magnum Tokyo because Magnum Tokyo had to get his shit in, which was unfortunate. But there is this great mystery and this great what if around what if Milano had stayed in Dragon Gate in 2005 because he leaves the company in February of 05 and you know did not return until the Toriyaman reunion show in January of 2020. So we really only saw the one Milano character. We just saw him in the white tights leading the Italian connection as this figurehead of a legendary unit. And, you know, he played up the heel tendencies at times. Other times he was kind of an uber baby face. But we never saw a darker side of Milano. And although his work in Chikara, uh, his one match in IWA Mid-South, like I said, there's some there's some good New Japan stuff. He's got a match with Prince Devin in 2009 that I really, really like. But Milano outside of Dragon Gate, it just feels like the charisma was never totally there. It just didn't translate for whatever reason and this match given the crowd heat and the fact that he seems to be almost gaining energy like a like a video game character every time the crowd boos him and he becomes this nearly unstoppable force this is the match where it's like oh my god this is this is what could have been this feels like the closest thing we have to an authentic Milano performance post Dragon Gate universe and it's a shame that his career ended only a few months later due to an eye injury, but I am I am right on board with John here. I'm at four and a half stars as well. All right. We've been like almost in lockstep on this episode, so we'll see. I mean, it's these five-match episodes, most of the time, all these matches are going to be awesome. So, I mean, it's like, you know, no one's choosing like, ah, oh, let's rewatch a two-and-a-half-star battle from <laughs> an episode of Monday Night Raw. Uh, match number four, Mitsuhara Masawa and Yoshinari Ogawa versus Naomichi Marafuji and Kenta from Noah. Uh, April 25th, 2004. I think I accidentally wrote down 2003 when I sent this stuff out, so I the, the Daily Motion video says 2003, but it's a oh, That's right. That's where I fucked up then, yeah. It's definitely from 04, because they... Misawa and Ogawa win the tag titles on in January 2004, so... Yes. They can't be defending them in April 2003. Uh, but yeah, this is like the absolute peak of Noah, sticking with them. I mean, like, these are... This is when, like, the champions were... You know, they, like when I think of the greatest roster of Noah champions ever, you have Kobashi as the heavyweight champion, Masawa and Ogawa as the heavyweight tag champions, 
um, Marafuji and Kenta as the junior tag champions, and they have been junior tag champions since uh, already since like July '03 at this point. So they're you know closing on their first year. I mean, they would hold them for like two straight years basically until like or I think over two years. Um, you know, and this is like. So they've got the junior tag champions up against the heavyweight tag champions. I think Kanemaru is the junior singles champion. He was a great junior singles champion. But yeah, so this is like, you know, peak Noah, the two sets of tag champions going up against each other. Uh, Marafuji and Kenta, you know, they had just defended the junior tag titles against Ogawa and Kotaro Suzuki on April 3rd. So since Ogawa got the shot at them, now they get a shot at the heavyweight tag titles. And this match was, like, super unique. There wasn't a ton of heavyweight versus junior stuff going on at the time. Um, and, you know, they the way this has worked is basically, like, you know, they can kick Ogawa's ass, but when Misawa comes in and elbows somebody, that is it. Like, one Misawa elbow puts your ass down. And they, you know, they'll, like, fucking four him in three or four times, and he'll stand there and no-sell it and just fucking drop them with one elbow and it's so great it's like Masawa is just on a different level than these two little geeks and he's gonna beat their asses and it works it's not like you know the crowd it's not like mad at Masawa for like holding them down brother or anything it's just like at especially at the stage of their careers I mean they had only been wrestling for a few especially Kenta I mean Kenta debuted in 2000 I mean like you know it, 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 it's a little early for him to be even going up against Masawa and like you know kicking his ass so it makes perfect sense that, like, you know, they, they're they juniors and, you know, they're smaller and Misawa's, like, this legend. So, of course, like, Misawa can put them down with one elbow. And it builds, like, great sympathy for Misawa and Kenta, or for Marafuji and Kenta throughout the entire match. And once they finally do get some flurries of offense on Misawa, like, the crowd goes absolutely crazy. So it really works. Um, you said you almost picked this one, too, right? Which is funny. It's one of my favorite matches ever. I love... Kenta Fuji, I think they're one of the all-time, you know, five greatest tag teams. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get in trouble by ranking the greatest tag <laughs> team of all time. That's gotta be in some hot water previously. But Kenta Fuji, I, you know, at worst are a top ten team. Their output to me is worthy of being considered in that top five stratosphere. And although I do not think this is their best match as a team, I think. This is one of the great Kenta Fuji matches. And as you mentioned, it's peak Noah because the main event of this show, the match that that follows this is Kenta Kobashi defeating Yoshihiro Takayama uh, to defend the GHC title, which is to me a five-star Kobashi match, one of his classic, classic defenses. Yeah. And this is this is when people think pro wrestling Noah. This is the era they think of. And I just love this match so much. Yeah, I mean, Kobashi's 04 was amazing when you get to the Kensuke matches after this, and then obviously Akiyama. But the like, Akiyama, the Kensuke stuff, yeah. he's got a great Taui match, there's yeah. a Yuji Nagata match at the end of 2000. Oh yeah, That's great. that one's awesome. Yeah. But uh, but obviously Maru Kenta, I was always, so you're a Kenta Fuji guy, I was always a Maru Kenta. Kenta Fuji. Yeah, I was always no, Maru Kenta. Joe Lanza and I come from the Kenta Fuji school okay. of naming things. I'm always Maru Kenta. But yes, it was a, uh, you know, it was a pretty, pretty awesome fucking match. Um, you know, not pretty awesome, really awesome fucking match. And, like, just see, I always like matches where, like, one guy is on a different level than the other guys, and you have to, you know, fight your way back and try to, like, 
even that up as best as you can, even though you basically have no chance to. I feel like we don't get enough of that nowadays, honestly, anywhere, even in Japanese wrestling. So I always, enjoy, I, I really enjoy that. Like they, at no point in this match does it feel like Misawa is on the same level as, as these guys, and it shouldn't. Not everybody has to be on the same level. I mean, you know, I feel like this is something wrestling nowadays does not get. But anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, there's not really even a ton of companies you could do that in. I'm trying to think of the New Japan equivalent, and I guess it would be like like Naito and Bushi versus Yo and Sho, and, you know, Sho and Yo would take it to Naito, but it wouldn't really ever feel like Naito's in trouble. I think that's the closest thing I can come up with. Yeah. But it, the, the legendary stature of Masawa mixed with the fact that it's heavyweight versus junior, and even though Noah capitalized on junior heavyweight wrestling and revolutionized the, the genre to some extent, it is, we are still in the lineage of a giant Baba promotion where juniors just aren't as good and just aren't as important. And I really wish, you know, to bring it back to current New Japan, I wish the never open weight title acted as such because I think there's so much good that can come of if you're going to separate the weight classes to have them mix every once in a while or else, you know, what's the point? Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, to your, your metaphor is good, but I just think if you did that nowadays, you know, Naito would just sell for show and yeah. I mean, that's all. Like, yeah. he would not just no-sell them. It's just not how things are done anymore. And, like, it, a big part of that is that, like, the the Masawa equivalent, equivalent in New Japan at this point would be Tanahashi. And Tanahashi has made his entire career out of selling for anybody. So it just wouldn't, again, he wouldn't do that kind of, like... Like, you know who the one person... Actually, you know what Tanahashi did... Completely no sell. I can plug it on Patreon again. When we talked uh, on the Alan Farrell episode 148 with me and uh, you know me and Alan talking about the DDT match with Tanahashi and Yohei Komatsu against Hiroshima and Ken Oka. He would not sell for Ken Oka yeah, or Hiroshima. That, that is a great match, and I am typically someone that is not into DDT at all, and I love that match. Yeah, so Tanahashi would not sell for either of the guys. So the problem, basically, Tanahashi will sell for anyone in New Japan. But to get him to do this kind of Misawa style, I'm just not going to sell for your strikes at all. You have to put him in DDT, I guess. But yeah, uh, if you want to hear all about that match, again, www.patreon.com slash wrestlingomikaze. $5 a month. You can hear me and Alan break it all down, plus the rich episode too. Uh, anyway, so this match, it starts out with, uh, you know, basically, they Marifuji kept a double-team Misawa as soon as the bell rings. And just fucking go to town on him, including a huge double super kick. But Misawa eventually fights them both off. Uh, Ogawa tags it and beats up Kenta on the floor. Uh, Kenta tries to fight out of the bad part of town back in the ring. But they cut him off again if we start a long Kenta heat segment. It's a good heat segment, though, because every time Kenta... You know, he makes these little comeback attempts that are good. But they shut him right back down again. And I particularly, I particularly liked when Kenta was kicking Ogawa's ass in a little strike exchange, only for the crafty little bastard to catch him with this like big drop toe hold that looks way better than your average drop toe hold. Honestly, so it was a good, good way to take back over. Um, Kenta tries to come back on the floor by this is one of the great Misawa no selling spots. He tries to Irish whip. I always whip Misawa into the railing, but Misawa just, he collides with the railing and just completely no-sells even the fucking railing, and just like charges forward and boots him back down. Just like, no, I'm not even going to sell being whipped into the railing by you. It's great. Uh, Marifuji tries to get involved, but uh, as usual, only takes one Misawa elbow to put Marifuji's ass down after he had a bunch of forearms. 
Uh, and then when Kenta crawls over to make the tag finally, Marafuji is still down and not on the apron for a tag from this one elbow straight because Misawa's elbows are just too powerful. Uh, that lets Ogawa come back in with a huge backdrop for two, and that'll become a theme. He, he loves his backdrops in this match. But when they all look as good as his backdrops do, that's totally fine. Yeah, who could blame him? Uh, Kenta finally comes back with the this big arm ringer and a dropkick on Misawa and gets the hot tag to Marafuji. Uh, but Marafuji immediately gets elbowed to the floor by Misawa, so it's not much of a hot tag. But when Misawa does his like trademark flip onto the apron, Marafuji dropkicks his leg to send him to the floor and then does this huge dive of his own. That looks great. Uh, but Ogawa... <laughs> Ogawa, like... So... Masawa tries to give him a Ogawa a Shurinai on the floor, but like by using the um, the railing. But Ogawa instead like grabs him in midair and fucking posts him, like sends him right in the post, crotch first, and then he stomps on his dick for good measure. What an asshole! <laughs> it's like Ogawa is like the master of being a complete dickhead. So I really enjoyed it. Um, now Marafuji ends up in the wrong part of town. We get a second heat segment, heat section here. Uh, just as we hit the 15-minute mark, another great backdrop from Ogawa. There's an, then another awesome one where he practically folds Marafuji in half after a Misawa dropkick, and they double-team Kent and kick his ass too when he tries to come in. Um, then they end up on the ramp, which is this is a, one of the cool spots I think in wrestling history. Marafuji he hits a Shurinai on Misawa using Ogawa's back. While, while Ogawa's laying across the ropes as his platform to kick off. And then, just as he lands, Kento flies in out of nowhere so fast the camera almost missed it, but it just got it. Like, if you missed it, if you, like, look down for a second, you might miss it, but, like, the camera does get it. And he hits the Bushiaku knee kick on Ogawa out of nowhere. Such an awesome fucking spot. Uh, it leads to a count-out tease, but Misawa, of course, beats the count. Um... Yeah, quickly, just that ape, that ramp spot, it's the turning point of the match. From there, it's like ev everything they do from here on out is, oh my god, this is so good. And it all starts with the ramp spot, which I I noticed watching it this time around that Marafuji springboarded off the back of Ogawa, but in my previous viewings of this match, I don't even know if I realized that or not, because I, it's just, it's an insane thing to come up with, it's an, it's an ex insane thing to execute, and then Kenta just flies in and throws a knee with absolutely no regard. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's a great, great spot. Um, I mean, to be clear, when I agree it's a train point of the match, but all the stuff before that is awesome, too. Oh, completely, yeah, yes. So really, it's just a great, awesome match. Uh, so Marafuji, you know, he gets caught coming by Misawa coming up the ropes, who then drops him on his head all in one motion with the Emerald Flosion. But Kenta comes in and goes after Misawa with a kick combo, enormous swan drive drop kick for two, and then... Kenta in his trademark, I'm going to be an asshole for no reason mode, he starts giving him the Kawada kicks, which is such a great fucking moment. Masala gets pissed off, of course, but then Kenta finally like just shrugs off his elbow, gives him a huge boot to the face, and he locks in the stretch plum. And then, like, all caps here, like, fuck yeah, just being like, you want to start a whole promotion to get away from him, buddy? I'm going to bring him to you. <laughs> it is, it is so it's good. beautiful. It is. I I pop every time because Kento really nails the stretch plum there. It's it's another one of those where it's just like, oh my god, what am I watching? Like, Kento's four years into his career, he's still a junior, and he's kind of beating the shit out of Masawa right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is just a great. I mean, just a great moment where he, like, Kenta finally just gets to kick his ass. And then he hits, like, a big kick, and then he hits Masawa with his own Tiger Suplex! Which is great. <laughs> it gets a two count. 
Uh, but Misawa finally, he's finally had enough selling. He shrugs off Kenta's kick combo. Hits this awesome, like, so he throws all these different elbows, but he, like, it's like a forward dive elbow. It's like a, almost like the, like the, uh, the Shawn Michaels diving forearm, but, like, with an elbow. It's, like, really, it, this is a really rare, rare variant. I don't think he does it very often, but it rules, so... I, I thought that was really cool. He follows up with a Tiger Driver, and Ogawa hits yet another backdrop for another two count. Um, then we get, like, the, you know, Marifuji comes back with a basement drop kick. He, or Marifuji and Ogawa tag in. I think I missed something, actually. Yes, he hits a backdrop for good measure. Kenta suddenly, he, he no-sells the backdrop. He, so he no-sells a Tiger Driver and a backdrop. He leaps up and hits the Bushiaku knee kick out of nowhere. So there you go. Then, now Kenta and Misawa are both down. Uh, Marifuji and Ogawa tag in. There's a pretty cool sequence where Ogawa, like, spins his way out of a spinning neckbreaker. He, like, spins too much, basically, uh, by Marifuji and turns it into this great DDT, just spiking him on his head. I don't understand. Can can you explain to me, Case, why people used to say Ogawa was bad? I really don't get it. Like, what the fuck matches were people watching? I don't know if it is a Meltzer train of thought. I don't know if it is a uh, JDW train of thought. I don't know where that started. I also think he was just undersized in all Japan, and that certainly didn't help, but he's also very, very good in all Japan. So, yeah, I don't know where the narrative comes from. All I know is that it is a false narrative that Yoshinari Ogawa is a bad wrestler. It's like really, it's one of the dumbest narratives, honestly. <laughs> and like all, of, I, I think it is a myth melter thing. And that's a good one. It's like, I oh God, it's awesome. Like he's still great now. Like six, yeah. fucking sixteen years later. So I don't know. People, people are fucking stupid. Ogawa has always ruled. People were mad that he like ended the Akiyama reign too. I think early on, but it's like, you know, those cradles and stuff were cool. It was, it is objectively cool to win the, G, the world title with a cradle. That is awesome. I, I like it. I like the way he won the title. I like the matches. Like he, he and, and Takayama and him and, uh, him and Masawa, like, I like those matches. Yeah. So, I don't know. People are dumb. Anyway, uh, Marafuji, you know, he basically hits the coast-to-coast dropkick on Ogawa before setting him up for the Shurinai. Masawa runs in to stop him, and here's the one big bad botch of the match where he, like, he's supposed to catch him in midair and give him the Emerald Flosion, but unfortunately, unfortunately they just kind of fall over. Now... He picks him up and delivers the Emerald Flotion for real. I don't mind this on repeat the spot grounds because you could make it make sense in storyline or slash if it was real. Because, like, so the, the stuff that really sucks when they repeat a spot is, like, when if re- repeating the spot in a bad way would be, like, if Marafuji was like, all right, and I've seen wrestlers do this. Let me get back on the ropes and act like I'm going to do a sure and I again, and then you can try to catch me again. Like, I've seen a lot of especially American wrestlers do that. That fucking sucks. It makes no sense. Here it can be like, Masawa's like, well, I wanted to give him an Emerald Flosion. Now let me give him an Emerald Flosion. Like, you can make sense of that in, from, like, a, you know, if this was real standpoint. So, it's different. I will say this. One, you're 100% correct. Two, this spot, oh, what could have been. Yeah. Oh, my God, I dream of the completed non-botched version of this spot because it would it would be one of the great things ever in professional wrestling like it would be like the oh my god remember when masawa interrupted a sliced bread and hit his own finisher out of it like and it's masawa doing a convoluted high spot which by 2004 he's just elbowing you in the face like masawa still has a few good or you know fine years left but it's not like his offense is all that high spot based or all that you know action packed or fast paced and then he does this spot and he comes up just short on it 
and it kills me every time, but I also love the imperfection of it. I'm very torn on if I want that, that you know, perfect version or if I like it just how it is. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's, it's, not, it's not one of these things that, like, greatly annoys me. So definitely could have been a lot worse. Uh, Misawa tags in and gives Marafuji the tiger driver, but Marafuji rolls backward out of the cover and hits Misawa with a basement dropkick. That was awesome. Uh, he hits a super kick and then an axe bomber of all things, but Misawa is not amused by this. Like, he just is like, how fucking dare you try to hit me with an axe bomber, you tiny-ass junior geek? And he gets right back up and hit, like levels him with a big elbow. Uh, he goes up top, but Kenta stops him with a rope-assisted kick. Marafuji goes up top and hits the one-man Spanish fly on fucking Mitsuharu Misawa. Can you... Like, that? that's one of those things where, like... Misawa is fucking awesome. He is 2004, okay? He is already, like, not in, like, the greatest shape of all time. And, you know, if he does not want to take a fucking one-man Spanish fly... The ring is his color for a goddamn reason, folks. This is his company. He could tell Marafuji, no, I ain't taking a one-man Spanish fly at the top, buddy. But he fucking was like, you want to do a one-man Spanish fly? Let's fucking do it, brother. And it is awesome. So I've seen this match <laughs> numerous times. Like I said, one of my favorite matches ever. I had completely forgotten that they did a one-man Spanish fly, and it is not Marafuji and Ogawa doing it. It is Marafuji and Masawa, it's, and that is completely insane. It is, it is completely nuts. Uh, but Ogawa dives in to make the save. Kenta hits the Kenta combo, but Ogawa pulls him out of the ring, like right when they're about to hit Masawa with a double super kick. Masawa hits the big elbow combo and hits Marafuji with the Emeraflosion for the pin. Uh, this match fucking rules so much. You know, I can't go the full five because they messed up that big spot and, you know, a couple other spots didn't look like perfect, perfect. But it's a total fucking classic. I mean, you know, Misawa is so awesome as the heavyweight badass who just isn't going to sell for these damn juniors until he finally does. Uh, and when they finally do beat him up a few times, it feels like they accomplished a lot. I mean, this is one of those matches where, like, sincerely, the losers get more over in losing. And Ogawa is great as, like, his little sleazeball partner. I mean, again, Ogawa rules. I do not understand the Ogawa hate. And Mario Kenta, you know, this is when they're, like, one of the best tag teams ever, like Gates said. So four and three quarters once again. Just an incredible match. John Carroll, I did not think we would be agreeing this much. I'm at four and three quarters as well. I think the only Marafuji and Kenta tag match that I can say is definitive Definitively better. Wait, than well, this. let me kind of guess. Sua, yes. Sua and Ricky Martin. No, wow. Man. I know that is a that is a great match that I kind of forgot about, but okay. no, that's not the one. Okay. Um, no, the uh, the Kenta Fuji versus the Double Takeshi's match mm. in I believe it is August two thousand six. Morishima and Rokio, Kenta Fuji, Budokan Hall. I think it is on the level of the all japan tag classics of the 90s it is an unbelievable match that is peak marifuji peak morishima kenta's just consistently great at this time period and rikio holds his own in the match that's one that like if you haven't seen it go see it i'm sure it's on youtube but this masawa nogawa match is just a tiny notch below that four and three quarters for me yeah, I have to go see that one, and maybe I'll even pick it for a future episode, because, yeah, that match, I, I've completely forgot about that one, and that one's awesome. Yeah, it's really fun. Uh, but I think I'm five on the Sue of Ricky Marvin one, so that one's just... I've got to go back and rewatch that. That was when you threw that at me, and I was yeah, like, oh, that... oh, I guess that did happen, but <laughs> that I haven't one... watched that in years. That one's incredible. So, there you go. We both have homework to do. 
<laughs> the last match on this week's episode is Keiji Budo defending the IWGP Heavyweight title against Nobuhiko Takada. Uh, this was the fan vote match, and I, I was surprised if the fans picked this one. I thought Ogawa and Dan Severn sounded cool. Uh, I might just go watch that, even though it lost. So I'm devastated that this match won the poll, and it's not, well, I'll, I'll explain my thoughts on this match when we get into it, but I too thought Ogawa versus Severn was going to be like, oh, of course I want to hear John, and specifically the the guy that loves Dragon Gate Case, of course I want to hear his thoughts on Ogawa versus Dan Severn. I will tell you now, not a great match, the Ogawa-Dan Severn match, but it is one of those that especially you watch it and listen to the commentary because the commentary is unintentionally very funny. It feels very much like a match from the early internet age where like the announcer has been part of the match explaining that uh, Naoi Ogawa is not Yoshinari Ogawa and just if there's any confusion among tape traders like just to be clear and I am fascinated by the late 90s early 2000s lineage of the NWA heavyweight championship because Ogawa has it and Severn's in the mix uh, and then Steve Carino and Shinya Hashimoto have a program over it that has what is, I think, the greatest work shoot of all time in the Carino versus Hashimoto match in Florida. And it's just weird where these Japanese superstars are coming over to America, the, you know, equivalent of Okada and Tanahashi and Naito, but they're working in front of 200 people. Like, just the optics of it are very, very strange to me. So for that that reason alone, the Ogawa versus Severn match is a lot of fun. I mean, the, at that point, basically, the Japanese people are the only ones who cared about the, <laughs> the WA title. So yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly that's it, it. Like, it, it meant a lot to 0-1, but in America, <laughs> who cared? It was Steve Carino winning the belt. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I really I wanted to pick this one because uh, again, on re- patreon.com slash wrestling omakase, Rich and I talked a little bit about the New Japan versus UW- UWFI feud on that episode. Um, you know, when we talked about the big New Japan versus UWF, the original, uh, the elimination tag from like 1986. So we did touch on the New Japan versus UWFI feud. I thought it'd be fun to go 10 years forward and, you know, look at this match now. I mean, this is one of the most, like we talked about in that episode, it's one of the most famous feuds of all time. I mean, I don't remember which Tokyo Dome it was that did all the records. It was either this one or the one three months later where Hashimoto beats Takata. I think it was this one, though, that did all the records. So uh, if you look at the January 15th, 1996 Wrestling Observer, Melter says, Keiji Mucho and Nobuhiko Takata officially went into the record books this week as the biggest drawing feud in pro wrestling history mm-hmm. after drawing their second consecutive sellout to the Tokyo Dome. Uh, There's a funny line here that I'll read now just before we get to the match where Meltzer says, Takata captured the IWGP championship with a cross arm breaker and then he puts in parentheses UFC arm bar in 1751 in the rematch of their October 9th match which drew the largest gate in live wrestling history. Yeah, and it beat, I mean, this beat, this this held this fucking record. Uh, So I'm glad you did confirm it was this one. I mean, this held this record for something like uh fucking i don't know like 12 years or something like i think it took until one of the big stadium manias in like 07 or 08 or 09 or something to finally have a higher gate which is kind of crazy yeah, probably 23 and ford field and we are now in the 2006 2007 era of wwe which i do know about any other period i am 
blissfully unaware, but 2006, 2007 is my sweet spot, and I think 23 was the WrestleMania yeah. that ended up beating that number, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, so it's like one of those around there, and it's like it took them a long ass time to get this uh, to beat them in the in the in the live gate. So yeah, this was just like they did like a ridiculous live gate, like they charged so much money for this show because of the the New Japan versus UWF thing. Obviously, completely sold it out, um, and you know they. They sold, like, an insane amount of merchandise, too, you know, for this New Japan versus GW5 feud. And, of course, the other famous thing about it is Eric Bischoff is in the building. And it gave him an idea to do a, he's like, hmm, a rival organization. That's a cool idea. I guess I'll do that, Call and I'll call it the NWO. I mean, that's not even, like, us, you know, um, I mean, he's admitted that. Yeah, no, that's it's his one air quotes good idea, and it's not his idea. Yeah, he voicedwrestling.com proving Eric Bischoff is a fraud. <laughs> he came, I mean, he basically he, he has admitted that in interviews that it came from attending this New Japan show. So, you know, it's a very influential match and a very influential feud, and it made a shit ton of money. So, it's very interesting to talk about. Uh, so, Muto, of course, is the champion here, and they start by shaking hands despite being from different organizations. Uh, the early part of this match, so it starts out good. I mean, Muto tries to sh- t- tries to shoot in on Takata for a takedown, but Takata keeps keeping out Bay with kicks. Uh, the feel out period, feeling out period goes on for a while, but like everything looks good and realistic. You know, good shoot style stuff. We end up on the mat for some like good counter wrestling before they they cut to like a woman for weirdly long amount of time. I don't know who that is. I didn't catch you. That do you not have any idea who that woman is case? I I bet you don't. I, I do not, but you're right. She was featured on camera for an, an inordinate amount of time. Yeah, it was really weird. Um, so the so they they cut back. They're still on the mat with Takata like trying to pass his guard and get a arm lock or something. Uh, Mudo rolls into a dominant position, and now from here, not much happens. Um, the mat work that was pretty interesting got really boring for a while, uh, and then it finally ends with Takata makes the ropes after Mudo goes for a figure four. But yeah, I mean, that that part is a little, you know, very, pretty damn dull. And it continues on for a little bit, being pretty dull, where like Muto, you know, he feints a big leaping kick. He tries to shoot in for a takedown, but Takata blocks it by backing up into the ropes. They trade leg kicks, and they end up in a clinch. But Takata, like, blocks the tempo to leg sweep and ends up on top of it again on the mat. He goes for a headlock and then goes after the arm, and it's just really not that interesting, this mat work. I mean, I've seen Takata have plenty of really, you know, interesting matches with awesome mat work, so I'm inclined to more blame Mudo for how, like, boring this is, who probably wasn't well-versed in this kind of, like, shoot-style mat work at all. You know, it's not something he really ever did in his career. So it just kind of, like, this was, like, where the Clash of Styles didn't really work. But from here, it picks up a lot, I think. I mean, maybe we... I don't know if we disagree there, but I, I assume you agree with me that the early part's kind of boring? Yeah, I... I will say most of this match. Well, that's that's not true. Y- yes, the the part you just mentioned was boring, and I think it picks up. I just think we might vary on how much it picked okay. up from there. Yeah, because here it picks up. For me, it picks up a lot. Um, so Muto escapes a Kimura, Kimura attempt by Takata, which does go on for a bit, but at least that's you know a little dramatic. He hits these really like high energy headbutts and these stomps and an elbow drop to finally wake up the crowd. He hits like a series of knees and kicks and then a backdrop. He ends up top for his trademark moonsault. Um, for some reason, instead of going for the cover, he tries to lock in his own Kimura. I don't know if it's just because he wants to beat Takata's own game or if there's, or if this is actually under UWFI rules because they never go 
for pins after this, I don't think. So I think it might just be 10 count knockout or submission. But yeah, um, you know, Takata blocks it and he goes for a cross arm breaker instead and very briefly gets it. But Takata immediately makes the ropes. Um, he fires back with middle kicks and a backdrop of his own. Then he gets his famous knee hold on Mudo. And the crowd is like going nuts at this point and screaming at Mudo not to tap out. And Didi manages to crawl over and make the ropes. Uh, Takata keeps lighting him up with kicks. And we get the UWFI style 10 count knockout tease. But Mudo gets up and hits him with the dragon screw. Uh, he locks in the figure four leg lock as the dome goes crazy. But Takata makes the ropes. Uh, Mudo tries another dragon screw, and this is maybe my favorite spot in the entire match, where he's trying with this dragon screw, Takata's trying to fight him off, and, like, it looked great when he finally gets it. Almost looks like a shoot dragon screw, which sounds stupid, because it's a dumb-looking move normally. I mean, not dumb-looking, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a move that obviously requires cooperation, let's say. Like, the guy basically has to take a, you know, like a big flipping bump. I mean, you can't really make it look like a shoot, um... I, I feel bad they said it was stupid. It's a great move. But, it, you know, there's one part in, like, an Okada-Tanahashi match where uh, I think either Okada or Tanahashi counter it by just not taking the bump, which is, like, yeah. makes it very obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very well, obvious. It, Sorry. It, it's a move that clearly exists in the pro wrestling universe. Exactly. I have come to grips with that. But it is... I, I could very easily see someone watching a dragon screw and going, nope, not for me. Whatever this is, no thank you. <laughs> I like it, but uh, I yes, shouldn't have, as I, do I. I feel bad I said stupid, but it, I should have said just not realistic. But this dragon screw, where, like, he only, like, half gets it, while at the same time Takata's trying to turn it into a headlock. So it looks, like, way less cooperative than usual. It looks really cool. Um, he goes for a figure four again, but this time Takata, like, quickly counters back into his knee hold. Uh, both guys roll the ropes for safety. Uh, Mudo tries the dragon screw again, but Takata keeps countering with his front headlock and his knees to the gut. And then he gets this awesome headlock takedown right into a cross arm breaker. But Mudo manages to make the rope set again. Takata just keeps kicking the fucking shit out of him again. And then locks in the cross arm breaker yet again. Uh, Mudo grabs on the referee to try and not tap out as the announcer yells at him to keep it going. But Mudo finally, either Mudo submits or the referee stops it. He does a, I can't tell if it's a verbal submission or a stoppage, but either way. Takata, the invader, has won the IWGP title. Uh, all the UWF guys get in the ring with him to celebrate this gigantic win. Uh, it would be maybe a little short-lived for Takata because he loses the title to Shinya Hashimoto back at the Dome on April 29th, but it was still a big moment. So, And he would get one successful defense. He would defend against Shiro Koshinaka on a UWFI show on March 1st, so good for him. Anyway, um... I I was worried about this one at first because the boring early stuff is really boring, even though there's not anything wrong with it per se. But for me at least, and I, I get the feeling it might not for you, it really fucking turns around after that. Like they end up working really well together with Takata using his uh more realistic counters on Mudo's dragon screws and figure fours, and the drama is just so high with the invader trying to take the title that it helps the match a lot. Uh, I went I end up going four and a quarter on this. I really, really liked it. Hello? Yes, sorry, you cut out for just a second. You said you went four and a quarter on this? Yes, I went four and a quarter. I really liked it. So, Mudo and Takata are just not two of my guys. If I was ever positioned in Mark Marin's garage and he asked me who my guys are, I'm certainly not answering Keiji Mudo and Nobuhika Takata. John, I get the feeling that Mark Marin reference went over your head. That is okay. Um, <laughs> but... When I look at, like, the Three Musketeers, like, I 
I think Hashimoto is is far, far better than Muto is. Muto is better than Chono, but also most people are better than Chono. Who cares? And then when you look at the UWFI company, I've always latched myself on to Yoji Anjo, who I think was the most charismatic shoot-style wrestler ever, thus my favorite, because he really brought something new to the table. But even like a Kayoshi Tamora, it's like, wow, he, he does grappling that I've never really seen before. And Takata was always just there to me in the footage I've watched. So although I've seen a lot of New Japan versus UWFI matches, this was not one of them that I had seen because it's two guys that I just have had very little interest in. So... I like the match. I certainly I certainly did not dislike it. I will say that. But to me, there was no point in this match where I ever felt like I was witnessing something that great. Although the work is strong, the story they told was nice. To me, if this is headlining a Tokyo Dome show, to me, this would have been looked at as a disappointment. I went three and a half stars on this. I thought it was I thought it was very good. But it's just these are two guys that I've never had any sort of connection to. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, I get it. You know, I love Keiji Muto. Uh, he's a guy that I always think is really underrated. And Takata I really love as well. So from his UWFI stuff of his that I've seen. So what did you want? Did you give a star rating? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that part. Three and a half. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's defensible. Because, like, the early, port, the early portion that's boring is really boring. So I totally get it. But, like, t- for me, it really picks up after that. So, like, I, I went back and forth on four flat or four and a quarter. But I liked... I like the later stuff enough to go four and a quarter. So, yeah, again, not a bad match. Just uh, I, I, it's it's a feud I really like, but two guys that I didn't think were particularly strong in said feud. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally understand what you're saying. All right, case. I guess we can wrap it up here. That's all five matches covered. Uh, would you like to give us some plugs? Oh, I'd love to. I am on Twitter at underscore in your case. Uh, follow. The Open the Voice Gate podcast account at Open Voice Gate on Twitter. If you'd like the up to the minute news on Dragon Gate and all things relating to the Dragon system, and listen to the Open the Voice Gate podcast that me and Mike Spears do. We have had episodes coming out weekly. We will continue to do so for the time being. Like I mentioned, every week we've been doing the Dragon Gate USA Rewind and Rewatch podcast, where we've been starting from Open the Historic Gate in 2009, and we will go through all of the shows until we hit the end of the promotion which happened in the spring of 2014 we're just about to start the 2011 shows on those shows we break down every match and then we also give a timeline into what was not only happening in dragon gate in japan but sort of a a bigger picture of the u.s indies landscape of the time which is something that is just now becoming old enough to look back on with any sense of hindsight so you know 2010 to roh we're gonna hit the Sinclair sale soon and we just keep tabs on the entire scene to see the way that it has for lack of a better term evolves Uh, so that's been a really fun project and then if you are interested in anything that I've done outside of wrestling I also host a weekly music podcast called Art School Albums where I've had just from Voices of Wrestling I've had Kevin Hare I've had Mike Spears I've had Aaron Bentley on Uh, Dylan Hales of the wrestling community had a great episode every week I have someone on and we talk about an album that means a lot to them it's a pretty simple concept it's a very fun show Uh, so I I highly recommend listening to that if you have not listened to it All right, Uh, and thank you very much for coming on case i hope you had fun on your first appearance finally 
Yes, it was a good time. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. All right, folks. Uh, you can follow us as always at Russell Omakase. Wrestling, of course, does not fit. Uh, of course, I I totally forgot to do the big Patreon plug at the start of the show. So you know, I plugged it a couple times, but uh, Patreon.com/slash Wrestling Omakase. Uh, the response has been honestly even above what I would have expected. Uh, you know, we're we're above what I had hoped to hit for a first month. So I greatly appreciate all of you that did sign up. Uh, we have seven episodes of my series covering every Okada Tanahashi match in order. Uh, I just put up these sevens today. Actually, I was recording this on Sunday. Uh, whatever today's date is, Sunday, June twenty-first. So we're halfway done uh, already. So the next seven, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully get done in about the same amount of time, and then start a brand new series again, like looking at every match in a series. Um, and if you're a patron, you'll be able to vote on which one we're going to do. I mean, it'll probably be like a bunch of New Japan options, because we'll stick with that for now. But, like, you know, you'll be able to pick which one you want to hear me do next. So definitely check that out. Um, we have, like I said, two full episodes of Omakase uh, that are exclusive to the Patreon. If you're, you know, if you're wondering what happened to 150, which is a big milestone episode, that's on the Patreon at patreon.com slash Omakase. Uh, me and Rich Preacher on there talking all about the another five matches, including uh, the famous click tag uh, from 1994 in WWF, the Bret Hart Steve Austin Survivor Series '96 match, the um, God, what the hell did we talk about? Tanahashi Suzuki from 2012, the Observer 2012 match of the year, the New Japan UWF uh, UWF match, like I talked about, and the RVD versus Jerry Lim from '99, which we didn't love, by the way. So uh, apparently, people said me. Uh, getting very mad at Rob Van Dam and Jerry Lynn was worth the price of admission alone. So definitely check that out. Um, and we got <laughs> that. You know what? That sounds like a draw. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> I was not happy with that match. It was not very good. <laughs> uh, there was so much stupid shit involving a fucking steel chair. We're just like, just what are you even doing? So here, sounds like a Rob Van Dam, Jerry Lynn match. <laughs> hear all about it, folks, on the Patreon. Um, and we have another anime omakase dropping this week with me and Nicole talking about an entire anime TV series. So check that out. Uh, so lots of stuff on there. New Japan Cup 2020 Pick'em. All kinds of stuff. So definitely check that out. In the meantime, next my next guest next week is going to be uh, Sylvie from the... Uh, so I wanted to get someone from a non-wrestling podcast. And, you know, she's a friend of mine that does a podcast called Friends of the Table, which is like a, like a D&D play podcast. But they're, you know, it's, a, it's very popular. So, you know, I thought it would be a good, cool idea to have someone I know as a wrestling fan who does a prominent non-wrestling podcast on the show. So that'll be next week's episode. Uh, I already know what matches she picked, and they're pretty, both pretty exciting matches. Uh, so we'll see, you know, we'll see what, and then her fan vote match is pretty great too. Yeah, we'll see if that one wins, I guess, but look out for that one next week. Uh, and that'll be our last five matches episode on the free feed for a while. So you have to go to the Patreon after that, because after that we'll, we'll be returning to covering current wrestling as especially Japanese wrestling is going to be returning to live crowds. So in the meantime, folks, thank you as always for listening and we will see you next time.